You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, you can be seated. Good morning. Uh, I'm glad uh, that you are here, hopefully without COVID. We're the few, the proud, the brave. Uh, who are surviving right now, uh, thank you for joining us. And we do, we keep praying for uh, our schools and our hospitals. I know everyone's handling a lot right now. So thank you for making time to be here. And if you're watching us online, we welcome you as well. And we hope you can join us as soon as possible. Get out your Bibles. Let's open to Mark chapter one. So we are in week two of our new series on the book of Mark. So let's recap a little bit. Last week we talked about uh, what Mark wants us to know right off the bat is that the most important thing about you, if you're a follower of Jesus, the most important thing about you as a disciple is who you follow. So it's not any event in your life, good or bad. It's not a series of events. It's not your strengths. It's not your weaknesses. It's not your failures. It's not your achievements. The most important thing about a follower, about a disciple, is who they follow. And so he dives right into his gospel on answering this question of who is Jesus. He wants to know who Jesus is. And the answer repeatedly in the book is going to be Jesus is the divine king. He's the king who has supernatural authority. And so Mark's book is full of the supernatural. In fact, 209 out of 661 verses, that's almost a third of the book, deal with miracles. Where Jesus, King Jesus, he's going around and he's showing his absolute authority over things like sickness, over nature, even death, over other realms of the supernatural. But most importantly, he's going to show his authority to forgive sins. And so our logic would say, this is great. All our troubles are over. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Everything's going to be great. And that's exactly what Mark's audience expected. When this Messiah comes, he's going to kick out the Romans. They're the ones that cause all our problems. He's going to get rid of them. And life is going to be great. But we get something else surprising in the Gospel of Mark. It's full of the supernatural. It is also full of conflict and crisis. People are angry at Jesus all the time. People are fighting against him all the time. The disciples, even the disciples, they're confused all the time. They have no idea what's happening. In fact, we get 20 instances of conflict between Jesus and the religious people. We get 18 instances of conflict between Jesus and his own disciples. And of course, we get the ultimate crisis, the cross. Or this guy, this divine king who was supposed to kick out the Romans, is killed by the Romans? What gives? What is going on? Mark's original audience was asking this exact same question. And so it's important to understand who Mark is writing to. He is writing to Gentile Christians in Rome. There's a lot of evidence for this. We know Peter and Mark were in Rome. In fact, Mark might be in Rome as he's writing this letter. And he's just writing down to keep things that he has already recounted to them and and told them. There's a lot of evidence in the text, so we only get one Old Testament quote. That's very rare for a gospel. Mark, he has to explain Jewish customs. It's as if the audience didn't really understand what they were. He has to translate Aramaic phrases where a Jewish audience would have known what they meant. And also the timing is very, very important here. Because in 64 AD, 80% of Rome was burned. 
Now, many people believe today that the emperor at the time, Nero, was the one that set the fire. And he burned it to make room and justify this new building project that he wanted to do. But, of course, he couldn't own up to that. And so what he did was he essentially blamed the Christians. And that made perfect sense to everybody. You know, those Christians, they're anti-social, they're anti-God, they don't worship the emperor. And they became the scapegoats for uh, this fire, this tragedy that happened in Rome. And thus began the first systematized persecution of the church. And it was horrible. It was awful. They would do things like put animal skins on Christians and send them out running and send wild dogs after them to devour them. They would do things like cover them in tar and put them on a post and light them on fire, and they would be the lanterns, the lamps, to light the city. And, of course, you probably have all heard of stories of sending Christians into the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals only to see the crowds erupt and cheer at their demise as they got torn limb from limb. This is not what they expected when they decided to follow King Jesus. And so Mark, he's writing, he's answering his questions. What happens when the king comes into your crisis but doesn't meet your expectations? What happens then? You've been there. You know, I thought Jesus was going to make my life work better. I thought he was going to fix some things in my life. And maybe he did, but then maybe he didn't. When the king meets your crisis, here's what we're going to find today. His priority is not to change himself. He's not going to perform for you. He doesn't perform for the crowds. His main objective is not to change your circumstances. His main objective is to change you. And that's our main point in this passage today. What Jesus wants most for you is to follow him. What Jesus wants the most for you is to follow him. Let's start it out in verse 14 is where we'll pick it up. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we get a very short teaching. This is it. This is the teaching. It's a two-part message. We got a truth. We got a response. The truth is the kingdom is here. He says, the time for the kingdom is fulfilled. Now, understand what he's saying. He's not saying time as in 10 o'clock. That would have been the word chronos. He's saying uh, kairos. It's a decisive time for action. So parents, you may tell your kids, hey, it's time for bed. And they ask, well, what time is it? And I say, I don't care what time it is on the clock. It is time for bed. It is time for the decisive action of going to bed. That's what he's saying. It's the decisive action of God's kingdom coming close. Now, what, what is a kingdom? When you think about a kingdom, a kingdom is really just a sphere of authority. So what Jesus is really doing here is he's claiming authority. He's saying, my right, my might are reaching down into your world, into your crisis, into your conflict. Now, the fancy theological term for what Jesus is describing here is inaugurated eschatology. So you think about those two words. You've heard of eschatology as the study of end times. Well, what's an inauguration? An inauguration is the beginning of a rule, of a reign. So inaugurated eschatology is the beginning of the end. Jesus is saying his kingdom is both a present reality now, but it's just the beginning of a future hope. Think of it like D-Day. 
D-Day and World War II, where the Allies threw every resource they had into invading Normandy. It was the largest invasion in military history. And the Germans did everything they could to stop it. Why? Because both sides knew once that beachhead was established, it wasn't the end of the war, but it was the beginning of the end. That's what Jesus is declaring here. When the king comes into your crisis, that beachhead has been established. Now, that doesn't do away with the crisis, but it does give you another option. You don't have to be alienated from God anymore. The crisis might not change, but you can. You can change. And that's why the second part of his message, so there's the truth. The second part of his message is a response. And it's really one imperative in two parts. He says, repent and believe. Almost always when those words are together, repent and believe, it's really talking about one thing, two parts to really one action that go together. But let's break them down into their parts a little bit. So to repent is to do a 180 degree change of direction. I mean, go exactly the opposite way. It means to change your mind, to rethink your thinking. D. Edmund Hebert said it this way, repentance, it's more than grief or regret for sin. It is a deep change of mind, an altered attitude towards sin, which has its proper fruit in a deliberate change of conduct. I put it this way, to repent is to get rid of all other agendas in your life. Jesus had no other agenda in his life other than his kingdom. We'll see. We'll see others try to insert their own agenda for Jesus. Jesus is going to have none of it. None of it. He has a singular focus. When we become followers of Jesus, he doesn't adopt our agenda. We adopt his. And we pick up that singular focus for our lives of his kingdom. Now that takes immense trust, which leads us to the second part. Believe. Believe is much more than knowing facts. Here in a second, we're going to meet a demon who knows exactly who Jesus is. But he has, that demon has his own agenda. He's not following Jesus. Biblically, belief means basically trust. It has this idea of rest. You can rest all of your weight on it. So if to repent is to do a 180 degree to reverse direction. Believing is to move with full speed, reckless abandon to Jesus. I'm not looking back, you know, I'm not kind of slow jogging it, see what's ahead. No, full tilt. Elton Trueblood said it this way, to be a Christian is to bet your life that Christ is right. To bet your life that Christ is right. See, the, the only way I'll ever give up my agenda for my life is if I trust him. I know I can fully trust him. So that's it. That's all of Jesus' teaching for this passage. Kingdom, his authority is here, and so there's our response, repent and believe. But Mark, over and over again, he is way more interested in actions than in words. And so next, he gives us a series of events that will essentially show us what this teaching look, looks like. He's going to use this word immediately over 40 times in his gospel. And it's just one event after the other. It's like a, it's like a five-year-old tell, telling a story. And then, and then, and then. And each one of these is supposed to show us what Jesus' words mean here. So as we read each one, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look for his kingdom, his authority. 
and then look for repentance and belief. What does it look like here? Let's skip ahead. We'll, go, we'll pick it up in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So he's in this area, the Sea of Galilee. It's a, a fishing with a thriving industry in Galilee. It's, I mean, it's a little lake. You go there, you can see all the way across. But even on this little lake, there were as many as 16 fishing ports in this one little lake. And fish from the Sea of Galilee were prized. They were exported all the way to Syria, all the way out to Egypt. And what we know, most likely, these fishermen had a really a sizable, thriving business. They were probably fairly successful in exporting this fish all over the world. And Jesus finds these men, and he issues them a command, follow me. And what Mark is saying is, this follow me, this is what repent and believe look like in action. And so you notice they dropped their nets. There's something they had to repent of, something they had to leave behind. They had to repent of all their other agendas. Now, are nets sinful? Were those nets bad? No. Those nets aren't sinful. They're not bad. They're not anti-God. In fact, those nets are good. They're providing a living. They're feeding other people all over the world. They're, they're leaving a future for their children. Those nets gave those men a well-managed and successful life. You know, we think sometimes, you know, if we follow Jesus, life's just going to work better. That, that's what the whole thing is for. In fact, that's why many people come to church. Jesus will help me manage my life. It will help me, he will help me have a good life. But if that's what Jesus wanted for them... He should have left them right where they were. In fact, he should have just given them more nets. Here, just keep, keep doing this. They had life totally under control when it was just them and their nets. But it wasn't about the most well-managed life. In fact, once they follow Jesus, after they follow him, it's going to create all kinds of conflict and crisis in their life. They're going to be totally confused about what's going on. But that's okay. Because what Jesus wanted most for them was to follow him. It was about adopting Jesus' agenda for their life. Now, you and I may not have nets. I don't know about you. I checked. I don't have any nets. I have zero nets. But it's not about the nets. The biggest thing they gave up that day was control. The ability to, the ability to say, this is what I choose for my life. Instead, I'm giving that up. I'm not going to choose for myself, and I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Now, men and women, that is belief. That is trust. That is resting in Jesus to leave what you know for an uncertain future. Why? Because you trust him that much. That is belief. That is repentance in action. Now, do you see the authority? Do you see the kingdom authority there? First, it's in their obedience. Later, Jesus is going to show his authority over demons, over sickness. But Mark, Mark starts out by showing Jesus' authority over their lives. That's where he starts. Second, it's in their transformation. What comes after the command to follow me? And I will make you fishers of men. Who's doing the making? Not them, not me, not you. He does the transformation. He does the making. He is the one who has the power to change us. You know, a lot of times I think we read that like, hey, go turn yourself into fishers of men and then you can follow me. But that's not what he said. Jesus wants to change you in a way that you can't do yourself. 
and he has the power and the authority to do it that you don't have. Next, we're going to see his authority over the spiritual realm, and this is where it gets a little crazy. Let's skip ahead, verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, get out of him. So the kingdom authority here is pretty obvious. I mean, Jesus essentially in the original language tells him, shut up, get out. That's what he says. And he's gone. He has to obey. Where's the repentance and belief? Where's the follow me? Well, we see it in the opposite. So you may have noticed the demon has knowledge. He knows exactly who Jesus is. But the demon has no repentance. He has no trust. And he is certainly not willing to follow Jesus. This is so important for us to know. I hope you know this morning, your demons know exactly who Jesus is, exactly who he is. And you know what? They are totally fine with you knowing who Jesus is. They are even fine with you going to church and doing all this religious activity. You may have noticed he's in the synagogue. The man with the demon, he's in the synagogue every day doing all the religious stuff. But your demons are terrified of you following Jesus. They are powerless. When you repent of all other agendas, when you trust him completely and you follow him, that's what they don't want you to do. You know, often I think we miss or ignore spiritual warfare because it's not quite as crazy as it is in Scripture sometimes. But maybe that's on purpose. If I'm honest, I, I keep praying for the day that we will wake up and see that spiritual warfare is real and it is present, but often it takes the form of busyness, distraction, materialism. I keep praying one day we'll see those things for what they are, the epicenter of spiritual warfare in our culture. You know, because whatever horrible social ill that we're all afraid of, whatever horrible social ill that people on TV and the radio, they like to rant and they rave about, it's going to destroy our society. I can tell you, I can tell you, None of it holds the church back as much as the phrase, I'm too busy. You've said it, I've said it, we've all said it. But I think what Mark is trying to tell us, you know, we're not lying, it's true. We're all too busy, it's true. And I think what Mark is trying to tell us is, you will always be too busy for his agenda and yours. Always be too busy for both of those agendas in your life. And you know what? Your demons are happy to let you hang out in the synagogue every day as long as you don't follow him, as long as you don't trust him so much that you let go of everything else and all other agendas and trust him. Men and women, maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't want us to have it all and do it all. What Jesus wants most for you is to follow him. Skip down to verse 31. We continue to see his power and his authority over the physical world. He goes and visits Peter's mother-in-law. And then we read in verse 31, And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. So again, his kingdom authority, obvious. Healing of sickness. Where's the following him? Where's the repentance and the belief? Well, what does she do the second she is healed? She serves them. And that word serve used to describe Peter's mother-in-law, it's the same word to describe Jesus in Mark 10, 45. 
This Mark 10, 45, it's the key verse of the whole book. I've asked everyone in the church to memorize it. Young and old, it's short, you can do it. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This tells us who Jesus is and what he has done. And what Peter's mother-in-law is showing us, the, the repentance, the belief of following him, she's becoming just like him. She's serving. To follow him is to become like him, Mark is telling us. So if Jesus was a sacrificial servant, what should his followers be like? We should be sacrificial servants. What should repentance and belief and action look like? It should look like us serving. And that's what Peter's mother-in-law shows us. What Jesus wants most for you is to follow him because he wants you to be like him. That's what he wants. He wants to change you and I. Next, we see his kingdom authority in his priority. So verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Now, this is where Jesus really frustrated and disappointed all of them. You know, by now, Jesus has done these miracles and words getting out and the crowds are hearing and everyone's heard about these and everyone wants to come find this Jesus so he can work his magic and fix their problems, fix their crisis. But Jesus just says flat out, that's not why I came. Jesus is saying his kingdom is bigger than your crisis. It's bigger. I know, I know we all want, there's nothing I want more than Jesus to just snap his fingers and fix my life. But that's not why he came. The purpose of his miracles is different. See, what he's doing is he's giving them, he's giving us snippets, little pictures, uh, beachheads from D-Day of his divine authority. Why? So that we can know that we can trust him. So we can know that he has all all that we need and so that we will follow him. What Jesus wants most for you is to follow him. And here's the reality. We all think we'd be different. The truth is you can be healed of every disease. You can get five miracles a day and still not be a follower of Jesus. The second something else comes up, I'd be whining and complaining, did those things, didn't do what? That does not make you a follower. See, preaching, Jesus says, preaching is the priority because that's what will lead to repentance and belief. And that's what Jesus is after. See, the real crisis, your real crisis isn't what what you think it is. It's not your sickness. It's not your suffering. It's your lack of relationship with God. And your prosperity can't fix that. Your religion can't fix that. Your sickness isn't preventing that. I like the way Chuck Swindoll said it. He said, repent and believe offers long-term permanent freedom from pain and suffering. But people, me, generally want immediate results, even if the relief is temporary. Regardless of what the multitudes wanted, Jesus came to lay an axe at the root of evil, not prune its innumerable branches. So your agenda might be immediate results. My agenda is often immediate results. His agenda for you is to lay an axe at the root of evil. And that's why what he wants most for you is to follow him, because that's your greatest need. And that's what this final episode is going to tell. So Mark closes with this summary episode. And what he's doing is he's showing us that what Jesus wants for us is actually our greatest need. It's what we need most, too. Let's pick it up in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus meets this leper, and y'all got to understand, back then leprosy was horrible, horrible disease. It was horrific. It was gross. We don't see it much today. We've mostly eradicated it, except, you know, there's one uh, leper home left in the whole United States that happens to be in my wonderful home state of Louisiana. That seems fitting for ways I can't quite articulate. Of course, it's in Louisiana. That's where it is. If you were a leper back then, they didn't have homes for you, though. A leper lived a lonely and hopeless life. What happens in leprosy is all your nerves die. You can't feel anything. And when all those nerves die and you can't feel your your fingers retract into your hands, your toes retract back into your feet. And you can't walk, you can't feel, you can't see, you can't hear. What happens over and over is you get cut or you get burned or you break something and you can't even feel it. You don't even know. So those wounds stay open and they rot and they decompose. So a leper back then, you, you looked like a zombie and you smelled putrid. In the Old Testament days, you, you couldn't go into a temple. You couldn't be touched. You're not even allowed to be in town. If anyone ever got close, you had to announce, unclean, unclean. If you saw, this is true, this is the, the law. If you saw a leper get too close to you, you could throw rocks at them. And that was fine. It was like totally legal. So in the Old Testament, leprosy is the picture of sin. And it makes sense. You can see it. It it rots from the inside. It spreads. It isolates. And man cannot cure it. So anytime, understand, anytime you read about leprosy in the Bible, it's talking about more than the physical disease. It is talking about sin. It is talking about the incurable wound of our hearts. And so even all the way through Scripture, leprosy is never said to be healed or cured. It is always said to be cleansed. Cleansed. This is, this is sin language. So we see this leper walk up to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus. He is on his knees begging and you can sense his desperation, but you can also sense his belief. If you can't, I know you can do it. If you're willing, you can do it. And then what we see from Jesus uh, is it's pity. Some translations say he's moved with a compassion. Some say filled with deep concern. The word there, it's the Greek word for guts, all of your inward parts. It's this empathy that rises from deep within you. It's saying all of his innards are torn up over this guy. And Jesus, before he's healed, before he's cleansed, Jesus touches him, reaches down and touches this man who has not been touched maybe for his whole life. And he says two words, willing, cleansed. And just like that, he can feel everything. Suddenly he has to to shout unclean anymore. Suddenly he can enter into the community. Suddenly this man has hope. And then Jesus gives him this strange command. He's he's always confusing us. Tells him, hey, just just keep it quiet, okay? What's going on here? Why, Why would Jesus tell him that? 
Well, a couple of things are going on. Number one, he's keeping his timeline. Jesus is not going to be forced into anything by the crowds. But Mark is also showing us what it looks like to be a follower, to be healed and cleansed by Jesus. See, Jesus knows what he has asked of this man is impossible. Here's why. Right now, they are in the north shore of Galilee. He has told him to go to Jerusalem. That is a two-day's journey. There's going to be two days' worth of this guy traveling through every town along the way. And if you saw a guy whose whole life had had leprosy and all of a sudden he's fine, you see him walking around, you're going to have some questions, aren't you? There's no way to keep this thing quiet. So notice how the former leper is described in verse 45. It says he, he begins to talk freely. That word, talk freely, it is the same word proclaim used for Jesus in verse 14. So Mark opens this section saying Jesus goes out proclaiming the gospel of God. And then we get this leper who's got hope and feeling for the first time in his life. What's he doing? He's going out and proclaiming. He is becoming a follower. He is becoming like Jesus. But I think there's one more thing going on here. See, when he, Jesus tells him, go to the priest, offer what Moses commanded, this is this is massive. See, in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus, there's a sacrifice required for anyone who'd been healed of leprosy. But here's the deal. That almost never happened. In the whole Old Testament, two people were cleansed of leprosy. Miriam, Moses' sister, and then Naaman, the Syrian general. And that's it. Which means whatever priest is there, when this guy shows up, he's going to have no idea how to do this. He's never seen it done. He doesn't know anyone who's ever seen it done. This is almost never happens. Why? And so he's got to go look it up because leprosy was considered incurable back then. In fact, they had a saying. The rabbis had a saying back then. If you can cure leprosy, you can raise the dead. Hello. Now that's some irony. Jesus is showing us who he is. There's three parts to this sacrifice. First part is you take two doves. You take the first dove and you slit its throat and you drain its blood into a bowl with running water in it. And then you, so you get this mixture of blood and water. Then you take this weed, this hyssop, you dip it in the mixture, you sprinkle it on the dove that's still alive, and then you set it free. Why? Because something else died in its place. And now it is clean and it is free. Second part, you take a pure spotless lamb. You put it on an altar and you cook it down until it is completely consumed. Why? Because your sin has been completely consumed. It is completely gone. There's no traces of it left. Third part, you shave off every hair of your entire body. Now, that's going to take some of us longer than others. Why? You're born again. You are literally as slick as a newborn baby. You are a new creation. Jesus is saying, let me connect the dots for you. The Levitical law was a picture of me and my kingdom. I can cleanse leprosy, the incurable physical disease. More than that, I can forgive sins, the incurable spiritual disease. I can make you clean. You know, the first version of this sermon I went through, it went something like this. You know, you see all these miracles and stuff, and it's like, well, you know, some people get lucky. Jesus gives some people some miracle. Here's some people. Good for them. Everyone else, suck it up. It's not about you. Get over it. They just got lucky. Now, that might be a little bit of a valid understanding from a human perspective. But that is not a valid understanding from an eternal perspective. See, from an eternal perspective, 
we all get the miracle. The best miracle is available to all of us. What Mark wants to show us is that you and I are the leper. We're the leper. Why? I don't care how physically healthy you are. We may have like some sort of Instagram wellness guru in here. That's great. But inside, we're all the same. We're all chock full of sin. Yet Jesus, full of compassion, can reach down to us in the middle of our uncleanliness. And he can make you clean. What Jesus wants most for you is to follow him. Why? Because that actually meets your greatest need. You get the miracle. In fact, none of the other miracles mean anything without this one. Peter's mother-in-law, she's still going to get sick and die one day. But that's okay. Because Jesus has made her clean. The reason Simon, Andrew, James, John, the only reason they're going to leave their nets is because they realize he can make me clean. The reason a bunch of Christians in Rome will be willing to be fed to lions is because they know he can make me clean. And the only reason any of us would give up our own agenda and our own decisions for our own lives to follow Jesus is because we believe he can make me clean. You know, I can't, can't help but think this morning, maybe there's many of us who need to do some business with God. You know, this is sad, but it's true. It breaks my heart to say, but it's true. And I know it's true because I see it in me. Most people actually care very little about God's kingdom. And that's true even in church. Most of us care about our lives. That's what we really care about. And so it's so easy. We come to church for how Jesus can help us with our lives. Jesus, help me with my marriage. Help me with my kids. Give me some good friendships. Jesus, help me manage my life. But men and women, that is using Jesus, not following him. That is like a leper looking for a personal assistant. Bro, you got bigger fish to fry. You got bigger issues going on. That's not what you need. See, Jesus is not interested in giving you your best life now. He's not even interested in meeting your expectations of him. He is interested in making you a follower of him. Jesus is interested in us repenting of our version of life and trusting him enough to follow him. So, do you want to use Jesus or do you want to follow Jesus? One of the advantages to writing this sermon is I get a head start on asking questions I don't want to answer like that. Let me tell you what I found in my heart. Do I want to use Jesus or follow him? Answer, yes. Both. I want, sometimes I want to follow Jesus. Sometimes I want to use Jesus. Which means I have some repenting to do. Which means that I have some other agendas. I need to lay at his feet. I have some areas I need to trust him in no matter where he leads. See, I have lots of things I want. But what he wants most for me is to follow him. So this morning, will you follow him with your whole life, wherever he leads? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.